Lucifer's Lightbringer presents The Mythical Astronomy of Ice and Fire Signs and Portals Part 1 Veil of Frozen Tears Live Podcast Special guest, Maester Mary. Well, hello, everyone. It, it was a live podcast earlier today, uh, but I uh, didn't quite mess up a lot, but I did have a lot of sort of diversions and chatting with Maester Mary, and well, there was, uh, it was just would have been a lot of editing, so I decided to go ahead and re-record a clean version for the podcast, but if you want to see some of the fun and jokes and conversation that we had on the live stream version of this, it is available on the Lucifer Means Lightbringer YouTube channel, of course. Uh, but from here on out, it's basically going to be the normal scripted and edited squeaky clean version. So here we are, arrived in the Vale of Aaron at last. It's an ice moon symbol so massive and spectacular that I simply had to save it for its own day in the sun. The veil has the entire vocabulary of the ice moon on display, and so I've been tempted to bring it up many times throughout the Moons of Ice and Fire series and the Blood of the Other series. But it so quickly becomes a new section and blows up whatever my current train of thought is that I usually end up having to cut it back out. So now it's kind of all piled up high, like a mountain of snow. And now it's time to trigger an avalanche of ice moon symbolism. There's another reason why I set aside the lovely and surprisingly lively Veil of Aaron and all that wondrous symbolism that goes on there. It brings up a whole new topic that is central to the mysteries that we've been pursuing thus far. What topic is this? Well, it's the title of the new series, Signs and Portals. The name is a continuation of my little joke of aping the titles of famous books in Planetosi lore, first my Bloodstone Compendium to mime Colloquo Votar's Jade Compendium, and of course, Signs and Portents is the book which supposedly contains all of the prophecies by Danes the Dreamer Targaryen, who foresaw the doom, again supposedly, 12 years before it happened, enabling the Targaryens to relocate to Dragonstone and become the only living Valerian-blooded family in possession of dragons in the world, which is either a very convenient cover story or Danes the Dreamer was a seriously good prophet, and we're going to want to read her book someday. We're looking out for that on Twitter, George announcing... The release of Signs and Portents instead of TWOW. I wouldn't be upset about that. But what we're looking for, and what I've been building up to for quite a long time now, is the idea of portals. So we're looking for signs of portals. They're everywhere, and we've actually been talking about them for a while now, beating around the proverbial burning bush, if you will. The so-called WeirwoodNet is certainly a kind of portal which greenseers can use to project their consciousness across time and space, and any time someone dies and comes back from death, that's going to involve portal symbolism as well. And I don't want you to think that, you know, we're just talking about portals because they're magical and fun and I've just sort of chosen them for a topic. I think most longtime mythical astronomers know that I'm always following a few main threads of symbolism and meaning and building upon past ideas and discoveries to sort of feel our way around in the dark and discover the secrets that Martin wants to keep hidden. Well, mostly hidden. Now, these lines of research basically dictate the topics that I'm doing in that I'm always writing about whatever I feel needs to come next based on whatever we've learned so far. The three main threads that we've followed up to this point are the Technicolor Trident Trio, R, G, and B. Roy G. Biv, the man with a multicolor, multi-pronged eating utensil, by which I mean fire magic, ice magic, and green seer magic. Dragons, Others, and Weirwoods. Red, green, and blue. The Forks of the Trident, if you didn't get the joke. So we started with quite a lot about dragons, of course, with five of the Bloodstone Compendium episodes dedicated to dragons, Azor High, the Long Night Disaster, the truth of the sword known as Lightbringer, and so on. You guys know what the deal is there, I'm sure. The Sacred Order of Green Zombies then delved into the hidden virtues of zombiehood, which seems to mostly tie to green seer and weird magic, but also seems to incorporate ice magic in the case of cold hands, and fire magic in the case of the symbolism and foreshadowing of the Night's Watch as fire whites. 
A lot of the Green Man folklore in the Green Zombie series is also good general background for understanding the Green Seers, the Children of the Forest, and how Stark's role as the King of Winter, which, spoiler alert, charges him with self-sacrificial immolation to bring the spring. Then I had a true bolt of lightning brainwave, probably one of my biggest since the original discovery of moon meteors, and that was the idea of Azor High being a green seer, or perhaps we should say, someone who entered the weirwood net. Ravenous Reader likes to say, I put the fire in the tree, and what we're talking about here is Weirwood Compendium 1, the Grey King and the Sea Dragon. It's an accurate but unfortunately misleading name for an essay which probably should have been titled Caps Lock, OMG, Azor High was a mother effing greenseer, y'all. It's simply a quirk of the fact that the Ironborn mythology just so happens to be the key to understanding how Lightbringer and Moon Meteor magic on one hand and Weirwood and Greenseer magic on the other are linked to one another as two sides of the Fire of the Gods coin which I imagine as a gold coin, with one side having a Garth head like the pre-Targaryen Westerosi gold coins had, and the other with a Targaryen dragon such as all the post-conquest gold coins had. So there you go. After Grey King and the Sea Dragon, the Weirwood Compendium series mostly explored the Green Seer slash Weirwood connection and the related lore that Martin used to craft it, although we continued to see more signs of Azor Ahai running around inside the Weirwood net. Nowhere more so than in Weirwood Compendium 4, In a Grove of Ash, where we caught him red-handed in the act of going into the trees. In a Grove of Ash really tied together two of the three branches of the story, fire magic and green seer magic. I'm not even going to begin to summarize that one. That's actually a good episode to re-listen to if you don't remember it well. In fact, that's kind of where this introduction is going. To really get these signs and portal series, you kind of need to catch up on any back episodes that you might not have listened to. The scripted episodes only I'm talking about. I wrote the Moons of Ice and Fire series to be accessible for anyone who simply knows my basic moon meteor theory, but at this point we're ready to begin tying things together like never before. And for that to work, it's necessary to understand what we've uncovered so far, so we know what we're tying together. Now, when we followed Azor High's path into the Grove of Ash, which is a euphemism for the Weird Net, of course, we made another discovery. Nissa Nissa was already there waiting for us. Thus was the Weirwood Goddess series born. Nissa Nissa, it seems, is some sort of elf woman tied to the Weirwoods, almost certainly a human child of the forest hybrid or a straight-up child of the forest. Heck, maybe the green men have green women, who are taller and more to Azor's liking. Anywho, it seems that when Azor High sacrificed Nissa Nissa in some sort of magical ritual, she went into the Weirwoods first. And not only that, I believe that the indications point towards her being the person that opened up the Weirwood net for green seers, or human green seers anyway, to inhabit in the first place. Nissa Nissa's symbolism has led us to describe her as, quote, the Weirwood goddess. And this is an archetype played by all the fiery Nissa Nissa characters. Almost too many to count off quickly. In fact, definitely too many to count off quickly. Nissa Nissa is essentially analogous to the Weirwood tree itself, and here I believe the symbolism is somewhat literal. The Weirwood net is Nissa Nissa in some sense, almost as if her mind merging with the Weirwood tree consciousness created the Weirwood net as we know it today, and every greenseer is kind of living inside the mind of dead Nissa Nissa. Or something. As I like to say, Something along those lines, because we're getting closer to the frontier of what I've already explored a bit, and I feel I understand with some degree of confidence, getting closer to the undiscovered country, as it were. I mean, not that close, I still do have lots and lots of notes for episodes to come, but as I start this series, I do have serious central questions that I do not currently know the answers to, and that I hope to discover in the process of writing and researching these episodes. I'll be introducing a couple of these questions to you in the first two episodes. I will say this right off the bat. A lot of the mystery has to do with people going into and coming out of the Weirwood Net. We've caught Azor High and Nissa Nissa both going in there, and we've begun to see that the others probably come out of there, which is something we still need to talk more about. Just as Nissa Nissa seems linked to the Weirwood Net, Night's Queen does too, and say, is there a connection between Nissa Nissa and Night's Queen? Is Nissa Nissa Night's Queen? Or more like, did dead Nissa Nissa somehow become the infamous corpse queen of the Night's King whom we refer to as Night's Queen? The Weirwood Net seems to be a kind of underworld, and it seems to be a potential vehicle for transformation. 
uh, particularly as people go into or come out of it. Thus, we've reached the central topic of signs and portals, the idea of the weirwood net as a door, and everything that goes along with that, the means by which that door is created, used, abused, and perhaps even shut, shut forever. Who goes in and out, and what happens to them as they do? Most importantly, what's it like inside? Are people stuck in there, and if so, who? Are there rescue missions? Battles going on in there? Is it all one place, or are there sections? Ah, but I get ahead of myself. I think you lords and ladies get the idea, though. So with all that said, this is still the Sansa Vale episode, or at least this one and the next one, and probably the one after that. As I said at the beginning, one of the reasons I held off on the eerie stuff is because so much of it has to do with portal symbolism, and I just wasn't quite ready to talk about it yet. We're going to approach the eerie and the veil as an ice moon symbol because that's clearly what it is, and it's basically the only ice moon symbol place that we haven't been to yet, but the portal stuff is going to begin creeping in pretty fast. Actually, right at the beginning. The eerie seems to be all about the ice moon, with a special emphasis on doors, entrances, and exits. And yes, we're going to talk about the moon door, of course. It's made of weirwood, after all, and it turns people into moon meteors. So I'd like to stop and say my thank yous here. Thanks, first of all, to Maester Mary, my friend from real life since Con of Thrones, for live performing the vocal readings from the text. Thanks to Stanley Black for the powerful as ever introduction music, and thanks to John Walsh for our flamenco guitar music. Thanks to George R.R. Martin for writing the books, and thanks most of all to you who've chosen to support Mythical Astronomy on Patreon. It really does mean a lot when someone new throws down to keep the lights on and the fires burning in the hearth, so what I'm trying to say is, you all are my light bringers and the wind beneath my wings. Did you ever know you're my hero? It's true. And it's also true that we've had a nice wave of new patrons since Con of Thrones and my recent appearances on certain podcasts of notoriety who are not actually podcasts. Hey, Emmett and Jeff. And you'll be hearing some new nicknames for sure today. In fact, I'd like to take this moment to welcome our new Guardian of the Galaxy patron, Katharina of the Many Tongues, the Twin Claw, Righteous Sword of the Small Folk, and Earthly Avatar of Heavenly House Gemini. If you want to check out our Patreon campaign and get yourself a cool nickname and even early access to the scripted episodes for $10 and above patrons, just go on over to Lucifer Means Lightbringer and click the Patreon tab or search for Lucifer Means Lightbringer on Patreon. So thanks everyone and let's do this. Veil of Frozen Tears This section is sponsored with love by two brand new members of the Starry Wisdom Priesthood. Stone Dancer, the Mind's Eye, Coral Master of the Trident, and Codfish the Steelbender, whose words are, Under the sea, all the metal workers are codfish. We've already talked about the Veil and the Eerie a little bit in the Ice Moon Apocalypse episode when we mentioned the legend of Alyssa's Tears and the icy waterfall that bears her name, and that's actually a terrific place to start understanding the symbolism of the Veil. We compared the icy waterfall named for Alyssa to the icy waterfall in the Frost Fangs that Jon Snow and Corn Halfhand ride through in order to take refuge in a secret cave. It was described as a moonlit curtain of water, and when Jon rides through... The falling water slapped at them with frozen fists, and the shock of the cold seemed to stop John's breath. I pointed this out as being clear death-foreshadowing language and basically identical to the language describing Vermeer Sixkin's death where he felt a shock of cold as if he had been plunged into the icy waters of a frozen lake. We've talked a bit about how plunging through the waters of an icy lake seems to be a metaphor for icy death transformation, or perhaps even turning into an other or an ice priestess, such as we believe Night's Queen to be. And you know what that makes the icy lake and icy waterfall symbols? Portals, that's right. The simple way to say it is that they mark one's entrance into the symbolic realm of the ice moon and the others. When John goes through the icy moonlit curtain of water and his breath is stopped, that's what's going on. The cave represents the inside of the ice moon, which also seems to represent the realm of the dead, and so John's death is foreshadowed as he walks through the curtain. He's entering the frozen part of hell, if you will, where the dragon known as Lucifer is imprisoned in a frozen lake. 
And speaking of Dante, did you know that that beast version of Lucifer trapped in the frozen lake actually has three heads? And that they cry icy tears that in turn form the lake? I know, I know, three heads has the dragon, and icy tears like Alyssa. Poor sad Lucifer, trapped in the cold lake, crying forever. It's okay, he won't stay there forever. (laughs) Oh, I'm sorry, sorry. Uh, No weird comments, please. In any case, the point is that this curtain of water is clearly a kind of demarcation between the outside and the inside, between the realm of the living and the realm of the dead. This metaphorical partition or barrier is often referred to as the Veil of Tears, such as when Davos sees the frozen dragons on Dragonstone stirring, as if to wake when Mel and Stannis do their Lightbringer ritual. Hopefully you can see the V-E-I-L Veil and V-A-L-E Veil wordplay by now. The Veil of Aaron, with its frozen waterfall, in many ways represents a frozen version of the Veil of Tears, and everything that lies beyond it. It represents the ice moon, as I've said, and therefore it symbolizes the death realm, the frozen hell, the cold place beyond the Veil of Tears. Now, although the Vale of Aaron is itself very nice, it's a lovely picturesque, fertile valley whose farming output rivals the output of the Reach, but the symbolism of the Eerie in particular is ice cold and as blue as the eyes of death, to use a well-known phrase. This veil and curtain language has been used prominently in another famous ice moon location, and you may be thinking of it already. Finally, he looked north. He saw the wall shining like blue crystal, and his bastard brother John sleeping alone in a cold bed, his skin growing pale and hard as the memory of all warmth fled from him. And he looked past the wall, past endless forests cloaked in snow, past the frozen shore and the great blue-white rivers of ice and the dead plains where nothing grew or lived. North and north and north he looked, to the curtain of light at the end of the world, and then beyond that curtain, He looked deep into the heart of winter, and then he cried out, afraid, and the heat of his tears burned on his cheeks. No, you know, the crow whispered as it sat on his shoulder. Now you know why you must live. Why, Bran said, not understanding, falling, falling. Because winter is coming. That's right, it's the great curtain of light that guards the heart of winter, a.k.a. the Aurora Borealis, a.k.a. the Dawn of the North, which is what Aurora Borealis translates to. Beyond that curtain is the heart of winter, symbolically the heart of the ice moon, where something truly terrible lies. Haven't you always wondered what Bran saw there that was so terrifying? What secret lies in the heart of winter? George has said that the winds of winter will take us farther north, than ever before, so perhaps we'll find out soon. But what if we didn't have to wait that long? Well, through symbolism, we can go where no POV character has yet gone and penetrate the heart of winter, which is in fact what we do every time we look inside an ice moon symbol. When we cracked Winterfell open and peered inside, looking for what was in the ice moon, we found the original kings of winter, who surely have some connection to the others as well as a ton of symbolism about John, the archetypal king of winter for the main story. And related to John, we also found the infamous dragon-locked-in-ice motif that we seem to find everywhere ice moons are symbolized. We don't need to beat that one to death. We spent like five episodes talking about it, so you know what the deal is there. But we've found other things inside the ice moon, too, when we've looked at other ice moon places, like the Sword Dawn, for example. In the cave that John and Corrin hid in, we saw a symbol of dawn in the shimmering pale stripe of moonlight that shone through the icy waterfall and projected itself onto the sand, which was then followed shortly by a reference to waiting for the dawn. This is yet another piece of evidence supporting an icy origin story for the sword dawn, as is the fact that the wall, another ice moon symbol, is compared to dawn on several occasions, which we have discussed thoroughly. George also gave the Aurora Borealis, which means dawn of the north, a prominent place guarding the heart of winter, almost as if Dawn and the others, who are like pale swords themselves, are a weird version of the archangel with the flaming sword who guards the entrance to the Garden of Eden. Yeah, think about it. White Harbor is another ice moon place, and it has that river called the White Knife, which froze over when Brandon Ice Eyes came down during a cruel long winter. The King's Guard's snow-white blazons shine like the dawn, as we saw, 
and of course they all bunk together at that lovely and picturesque White Sword Tower. So, you guys get the picture. Dawn is something that comes from the Ice Moon, either symbolically or, as I believe, literally, with the Dawn Meteor having been chipped off the Ice Moon during the first Long Night Moon Disaster, what we think of as the destruction of the, quote, Fire Moon. A similar message, which is not at all in conflict, would simply be that Dawn was not forged at Starfall, but somewhere in the north, and has some tie to ice magic, Starks, and the others. Returning to John walking through the waterfall curtain and into Ice Moon World amidst death foreshadowing, let me make a non-mythical astronomy point. Before I was even thinking about something called an ice moon, I read this scene and at some point was reminded of Bran's vision of the curtain of light around the heart of winter and John growing pale and hard at the wall. Both scenes have John death foreshadowing, and the moonlit waterfall curtain reminded me of the curtain of light. So I read it and saw it as foreshadowing of John going beyond the curtain of light and into the heart of winter, which is something I can definitely see happening. That's why he's turning into a green zombie after all according to theory. But now I understand that the ice moon is kind of an overarching symbol, which ties multiple things together. The heart of winter, yes, but also the very idea of a death realm, which is linked to the others. And so John walking through that moon waterfall now takes on many layers of new meaning and import. And now we turn our attention to the Vale of Aaron, a giant ice moon symbol with a sometimes frozen waterfall and the name Vale. The frozen waterfall is seen as a flow of cold tears, so it really is an obvious veil of tears symbol, one which is clearly anchored to ice moon symbolism. Alyssa herself is dead, so we can even see the tears as coming to us from the other side. The tears are ice moon symbols, of course, so this is just like saying that ice moon meteors come from the ice moon, but the ice moon is a death realm, and so dead Alyssa's restless ghost cries her tears from the other side of the Veil of Tears. The others, of course, are the most important earthly symbol of the idea of an ice moon meteor, and they can indeed be considered to be coming from beyond the Veil of Tears as well. George's original draft letter pitching A Game of Thrones to his publisher calls the others the Neverborn, which seems to hint at our theory about Night's Queen somehow turning her babies or perhaps pregnancies into white shadows, much in the way Melisandre takes Stannis' seed and births black shadows. These seeds, or potential children of Stannis, are never born, really. Instead, it seems more like their life energy is converted into the shadow baby, or you might say harvested to make the shadow baby. I think Night's Queen and King making others might work something like this too, in all likelihood. Whatever the details of other creation, which is a mystery that we're making gradual progress on and which I hope to eventually solve, I think it's indisputable that although the others are not dead like whites, they aren't quite alive in the usual sense either, as their stated mission per George is to, quote, ride down on the winds of winter to extinguish everything that we would call life. And it's actually not their exact state of animation that I'm trying to talk about here, but rather the idea that they have come out of some otherworldly dimension, the frozen death realm that I've been speaking of. It starts with their persistent description as shadows. The others are frequently called white shadows, or pale shadows, or just shadows. There are varying ideas of what a person's shadow can represent, but all of them loosely incorporate the idea of a shadow being something less than a full being something more like a remnant or a ghost. And then there's also something called the shadow self, which I won't even begin to take the time to get into. Point being, when George calls the others shadows over and over, he's strongly implying them as some sort of interdimensional beings. Tormund calls them shadows with teeth, and then speaks of trying to fight a mist, implying that the others might be able to fly around as a mist and then substantiate their bodies at will. We have yet to see that, but it's kind of what he's implying. The fact that they don't break the snow when they walk also implies them as ethereal, ghostly beings, at least in part or at times. I actually think the ghost grass that grows outside the walls of a shy by the shadow is an excellent reminder about the ghostly nature of the others, and since it's such a gem, let's do take it down off the mantle and give it a polish. Down in the shadowlands beyond a shy, they say there are oceans of ghost grass, taller than a man on horseback with stalks as pale as milk glass. It murders all other grass and glows in the dark with the spirits of the damned. The Dothraki claim that someday ghost grass will cover the entire world, and then 
all life will end. Sir Jorah, amateur botanist and harbinger of doom, everyone. Thanks for the info, buddy. In any case, we've talked about this before. The ghost grass looks like a field of dawn swords with tall stalks or blades that look like milk glass and glow a bit in the dark. But the ghost grass also evokes the others who have bones like milk glass and who indeed want to cover the world and, well, extinguish all life. The pale crystalline swords of the others are also invoked here. And again, we'll dust off the quote. The other slid forward on silent feet. In its hand was a long sword like none that Will had ever seen. No human metal had gone into the forging of that blade. It was alive with moonlight, translucent, a shard of crystal so thin that it seemed to almost vanish when seen edge on. There was a faint blue shimmer to the thing, a ghost light that played around its edges, and somehow Will knew it was sharper than any razor. These ice swords are alive with moonlight, evoking dawns alive with light. They also have a blue ghost light playing around their edges. Other times, they are referred to as pale swords, which recalls the tower at Starfall named after Dawn, the pale stone sword. We know what the deal is here, basically. Although Dawn doesn't seem to be a literal sword of an other, Dawn and the others, and their swords, are both symbols of ice moon meteors, and they share all the same symbolism. And some of that symbolism alludes to ghosts. The ghost light of the other swords and that of the ghost grass. That lines up perfectly with the idea of the inside of the ice moon, representing a kind of icy death realm beyond the Veil of Tears, and of things which come out of ice moon symbols as being ghostly, undead, or resurrected. You may also recall that the Kingsguard, with their snow-white armor and pale shadow and white shadow descriptions, serve as terrific symbolic stand-ins for the others. I hope, I hope you recall that. I made it kind of a main point of Moons of Ice and Fire 2, Dawn of the Others, so I hope that stuck. In any case, you may recall this specific line from that episode. Sir Boros Blount guarded the far end of the bridge. White steel armor ghostly in the moonlight. So, at the risk of being blunt, I say to you that the others are like weird, icy ghosts of some sort. They're the people from beyond the Veil of Tears, and their tears and veils are all made of ice. Another version of the icy waterfall is, of course, the frozen pond, lake, or river, and fittingly, the others can also be seen to be coming from out of this frozen lake. Their voices are, famously, like the cracking of ice on a winter lake. That's so they can get out of the lake, of course. The frozen Lucifer in the ninth circle of hell imagery really hits home here. If the others are the children of Azor Ahai turned Night's King, as I propose, then we can see Azor Ahai as Lucifer, which we do already, and the others as his progeny, escaping their frozen prison to fight the last battle. See? I told you Lucifer wasn't stuck in there forever. Don't cry, buddy. Chin up. The others are coming. And just to put a bow on that, consider the wall, which, as we know, is described as a frozen river and a frozen stream. It works just like all the other Veil of Frozen Tear symbols, marking the barrier between the end of the world and beyond the end of the world, as John repeatedly says in the first books. The phrase curtain wall leaps to mind here and leaves us with the impression of the wall as an icy curtain, which it is. You can also imagine the wall as the surface of a frozen lake, with everything north of the wall belonging to the others and thus being under the lake. In order for them to come out of the lake, they will have to break through the ice, as we expect them to do anyway. As everyone knows, when the wall melts, it is said to weep. And so we can see it really is an analog to the cold waterfall of Alyssa's tears. Think about it. If the wall weeps when it melts, then we can think about it as being made of frozen tears, in a sense. The wall will melt, or likely will do some combination of shattering and melting, when the others invade, as we know. And when it happens, they will be coming through the frozen veil of tears into the land of the living. This will be a perfect union of symbolism and actual real event, because the wall symbolizes the frozen veil of tears from which the spirits of the others metaphorically come, but the wall is also a literal curtain of ice, implied as frozen tears, which serves as a barrier and will need to be broken or melted in order for the others to invade Westeros, unless they can swim, which would be disappointing. So forgive me for harping on this here, but I just love this kind of stuff. You know me. So this apocalyptic melting of the wall would be a parallel to the promised idea of Alyssa's tears one day reaching the ground, something which may only happen with an avalanche-style disaster involving the giant's lance. 
Still, it's the symbolism which is important here, and at this point I hope you can start to see just how amazing a symbol Alyssa's tears really are, and that the name Vale of Aaron indicates that this icy waterfall slash Vale of Tears metaphor is central to what is going on here. Thus, the waterfall is actually emblematic of the Vale as a whole, and since it serves as the symbolic entrance and exit, what you might call a portal, to the icy realm of the others, I figured we'd use it as our entry path as well. So, in we go. I guess we're all polar bears now. Lysa likes the giant's lance a lot. This next section is brought to you by the Patreon support of two new members of the Starry Wisdom Priesthood. Lady Silverwing, last child of the forest, keeper of all Leeward shores, and John, called Saint Baptiste, apprentice of satyrs, cupbearer of leopards, and the thief of sometimes. As ice moon symbols go, I'd have to say that the eerie is by far the easiest to identify. Lunar symbolism is everywhere in abundance. House Aaron has a moon in their sigil. They have that famous moon door in case any moon maidens need to make a hasty exit. A place called the Gates of the Moon. A nearby mountain range called the Mountains of the Moon. Then there's Sir Hugh of the Vale with his sky blue cloak bordered in crescent moons. And we can't help but notice that Lysa's favorite jewelry usually involves moonstones. She likes to pair the moonstones with sapphires, actually, which is the other part of the symbolic equation here, ice and the others. House Aaron's cream-colored moon and falcon appears on a field of sky blue, and they are really quite dogmatic about that color pairing, like really dogmatic. The Eyrie is a castle built of snow-white marble, and it was built high up on the shoulder of a snow-covered mountain. Even more vivid is this description of the Eyrie from A Feast for Crows, which comes as Sansa is descending from the Eyrie in one of those winch buckets. The sky cells on the lower levels made the castle look something like a honeycomb from below. A honeycomb made of ice, Elaine thought. A castle made of snow. She could hear the wind whistling round the bucket. We'll talk more about both honeycombs and, of course, Sansa's iconic snow castle building scene down the line, but let's stick with the basics for now. The Eyrie is an ice castle, absolutely dripping with lunar symbolism. At least when it melts, it's, it's dripping. Um, in other words, this isn't exactly what you'd call a riddle. Blue and white, moons and snow. That's what you find here. But of course it goes deeper than that. Those of us who've spent time studying the Others and everything else related to ice magic and symbols of the Others and ice magic, as we have done throughout the Moons of Ice and Fire and Blood of the Other series, will start to recognize all the familiar ice symbolism keywords and motifs as soon as we have a look around. We've already had a glimpse, of course. I've given you a couple of really great quotes from the Eerie in previous episodes, such as this one that we quoted in Moons 3, Visenya Draconis. When her uncle saw that she had stopped, he moved his horse closer and pointed. It's there, behind Alyssa's tears. All you can see from here is just a flash of white every now and then, if you look hard and the sun hits the walls just right. Seven towers, Ned had told her like white daggers thrust into the belly of the sky, so high you can stand on the parapets and look down on the clouds. Gods, Ned! It's almost like you were standing on the moon from the sound of things. Not only do you look down on the clouds from the Eyrie, but also on a castle called Sky. You're looking down at the sky, get it? Because the Eyrie represents the moon, and it's armed with huge white daggers. From the ground, the Eerie appears to be right next to Alyssa's tears, implying the Eerie as an ice moon symbol from which Alyssa's tears flow. And of course, they have that white marble statue of Alyssa right in the godswood up there. That all fits. The tears are ice moon meteors, and they come from ice moon symbols like the Eerie or Alyssa herself. That same symbolic idea is presented by the seven marble towers that look like white daggers thrusting into the belly of the sky. In actuality, the towers point upwards at the sky, of course, but if this were a moon, the white daggers would thrust into the belly of the sky by falling from space as moon meteors. Once again, we see the purpose of placing a castle called Sky below the Eyrie, as we can imagine the white daggers pointing down at Castle Sky, and thus at the ground. 
White daggers are notorious ice moon meteor symbols, of course, evoking dawn, the pale swords of the others, the white knife river, which freezes hard on occasion, and the wall, which is both like a snake and a sword and shines alive with light, but is also like a frozen river, like the white knife, which is a sword. And round and round we go. The eerie is showing us an ice moon that is locked and loaded, in other words, armed with white daggers. And that's not all. Cat also describes the seven white towers of the Erie as seven slender white towers bunched as tightly as arrows in a quiver on a shoulder of the great mountain, which kind of makes the mountain sound like a giant with a quiver of giant white arrows. The white towers also gain an extra icy dimension when we compare them to the seven crystal towers of the Sept of Baylor, another ice moon location. The Erie's white towers are like white knives, so the crystal towers might be like crystal knives. And of course, the warrior's sons who live in the Sept of Baylor have a sigil with a crystal sword on a field of black, as I love to mention. The others have long swords that appear to be razor-thin shards of ice crystal, as we know, so the crystal sword symbolism is overall a very strong tie between the others and the faith. The dagger-like white towers of the Eyrie, so intent on stabbing the sky, simply duplicate the symbolism. Later in A Feast for Crows, Sansa inner monologues about an ice storm that transformed the castle into crystal for a fortnight, reinforcing the symbolic link between crystal and ice, and once again implying the Eyrie as an ice castle, which is kind of the idea. Another thing to notice in the previous quote, you can only see the Eyrie when the sun hits the walls just right. When the ice moon castle drinks the fire of the sun, in other words, just as the Carthine prophecy says that one day the other moon will kiss the sun too and the dragons will return. That's when you can see the moon from Earth lighting up. We've seen a lot of great symbolism when the sun strikes the great ice wall of the north, such as when it becomes alive with light and blazes blue and crystalline. So this seems like similar wordplay here. White ice daggers drinking the fire of the sun, and we know what happens next. The sun's fire is turned cold. Sansa walked down the blue silk carpet between rows of fluted pillars slim as lances. The floors and the walls of the high hall were made of milk-white marble veined with blue. Shafts of pale daylight slanted down through narrow arched windows along the eastern wall. Between the windows were torches, mounted in high iron sconces, but none of them was lit. Her footsteps fell softly on the carpet. Outside, the wind blew cold and lonely. Amid so much white marble, even the sunlight looked chilly somehow, though not half so chilly as her aunt. Liza had dressed in a gown of cream-colored velvet and a necklace of sapphires and moonstones. Veined with blue implies blue blood veins, and hence the blue blood of the others. Color descriptions like milk white and cream are basically always lunar in symbolic parlance, but can go either way in terms of ice or fire. If you think about it, we've seen Melisandre having skin like milk and cream, but it's combined with all the fire symbolism that Martin could think of, and there's even Maester Lewin's mysterious pale red fire milk that he applies to his wound after Shaggy Dog bites him a bit in the crypts. Here in the High Hall of the Aarons, however, it's clearly a milk and ice pairing, shot through with veins of cold. The statue of Alyssa in the Godswood has it too. It's described as a weeping woman carved in veined white marble. There's your Night's Queen statue, folks. <laughs> I don't know what else to say. Then we have Ice Queen Lysa herself with her moonstones and sapphires. The idea that the sunlight is turned chilly in the hall, but that Lysa was even colder, kind of implies Lysa as the coldest thing in the room, almost as if the cold was emanating from her, like she was an other. In fact, just a moment later, when Lysa accuses Sansa of kissing Peter, it says, The high hall seemed to grow a little colder. The wall and floors and columns might have turned to ice. This is standard Night's Queen behavior, which we have seen many times before. It's extremely similar to Alice Karstark's wedding, where she was named Winter's Lady, and then the fire shivered and huddled in its ditch as the wind came off the wall as cold as the breath of an ice dragon. This should come as no surprise. I mean, who do you think we'd find here at Chateau Ice Moon? Night's Queen, of course. 
She's basically the parallel for the ice moon, what with her ice-cold, moon-pale skin and eyes like blue stars. We've already done an in-depth study of Lysa's sister, Lady Catelyn, and we've found that her symbolism is very consistent with that of Nissa Nissa throughout her entire life. Lady Stoneheart is a bit more complex, but still runs on fire magic and leads a cult of fire worshippers, so the message remains the same. Cat is a fire moon person all the way. Her sister, meanwhile, the traitor, Lysa Aaron, decked out in moonstones and sapphires, enthroned in a castle of ice, the coldest thing in the room? Well, let's just say that Cat and Lysa make a very highly outstanding, wonderful moons of ice and fire pairing, just like Visenya and Rainey's. Gotta like that. We're going to keep discussing Lysa throughout, but let's continue on with the physical descriptions of the Eerie for just a bit longer. In the previous quote that we just pulled, with the chilly sunlight in the High Hall, there was a line about... Rows of fluted pillars, slim as lances. And of course, those pillars are made from the blue-veined white marble like everything else. Lance is a not insignificant word here in the Vale, where we find a giant mountain named the Giant's Lance. And especially here at the Erie, which perches high on the slope of the Giant's Lance. So, what's all this about a lance? Is this about King Arthur and Lancelot? Well, it's kind of always about King Arthur in a sense... But the thing to think of is actually Gregor Clegane, the mountain that rides, who very prominently uses a lance to inflict great violence during the turning of the hand at King's Landing in a Game of Thrones. This scene is one of the most obvious examples of mythical astronomy symbolism in the first book, and the whole series, I guess I'd have to say, and many people have messaged me about it over the years. I've never talked about it in a podcast before, but now it's finally time. The reason I never talked about it is because the exact meaning had always eluded me for a while until I cracked the secret of the dragon-locked-in-ice metaphor. That's what I do, by the way. I mention the things that I can figure out the most clearly and put everything else on the back burner, and then as I sort of go and explore, eventually those things that I didn't quite understand start to make sense, and then that's when I work them in. So, a little behind-the-scenes talk. Anyways, uh, this scene begins with Sansa observing heroes riding essentially straight out of the songs and legends and onto the tourney grounds. They watch the heroes of a hundred songs ride forth, each more fabulous than the last. The seven knights of the Kingsguard took the field, all but Jamie Lannister in scaled armor the color of milk, their cloaks as white as the fresh-fallen snow. Sir Jamie wore the white cloak as well, but beneath it he was shining gold from head to foot, with a lion's head helm and a golden sword. Sir Gregor Clegane, the mountain that rides, thundered past them like an avalanche. Sansa remembered Lord Jan Royce, who had guessed it at Winterfell two years before. His armor is bronze, thousands and thousands of years old, engraved with magic runes that ward him against harm, she whispered to Jane. Septim Ordain pointed out Lord Jason Malister, an indigo chased with silver, the wings of an eagle on his helm. He had cut down three of Rhaegar's bannermen on the trident. The girls giggled over the warrior priest Thoros of Myr with his flapping red robes and shaven head, until the Septa told them that he had once scaled the walls of Pike with a flaming sword in hand. I read the whole quote here because it's just quite the all-star cast, giving us flaming sword guys and white knights in snow and milk-colored trappings. Kind of sounds like the last battle. I'm sure you noticed Gregor thundering by like an avalanche, because, of course, an avalanche from the giant's lance is one form of the Ice Moon Apocalypse foreshadowing, after all, as we talked about uh, in the Ice Moon Apocalypse episode. Then when Cat ascends to the Way Castle, known as Sky in A Game of Thrones, on her way to see Lysa at the Eyrie, we get very rich symbolic talk about, guess what, avalanches. The Waycastle called Sky was no more than a high, crescent-shaped wall of unmortared stone raised against the side of the mountain, but even the topless towers of Valeria could not have looked more beautiful to Catelyn Stark. Here, at the last the snow crown began, Sky's weathered stones were rimmed with frost, and long spears of ice hung from the slopes above. Dawn was breaking in the east as Maya's stone hallooed for the guards, and the gates opened before them. 
Inside the walls there was only a series of ramps and a great tumble of boulders and stones of all sizes. No doubt it would be the easiest thing in the world to begin an avalanche from here. A mouth yawned in the rock face in front of them. Once again, the name of Castle Sky works to imply a double meaning. An avalanche coming from the sky is simply another way to describe the ice moon meteor shower that was promised. Indeed, this castle called Sky turns out to be an icy crescent of stone that can easily start avalanches. I mean, this is just screaming out, hashtag ice moon apocalypse. The stones are weathered because the ice moon apocalypse is basically falling stones as weather. The meteor shower, a.k.a. the storm of swords. Did someone mention dawn breaking and Valeria? Yeah, okay, I, I wasn't the only one who heard that. All right, great. And oh, look, hey, icy spears are hanging down. Not sure what those could symbolize. And look, there's also good moon face symbolism as we see a mouth yawning in the rock face and the idea of the snow crown starting here. The icy crescent moon in the sky is the king of winter, and he wears a snow crown as he sits up in the sky, brooding over the apocalypse and counting his giant lances, white arrows, icy spears, all the while fingers brushing the edges of his white daggers. You tell me what the foreshadowing is here, because all I can see are warnings of the hashtag ice moon apocalypse. Finally, note that Catelyn promptly enters the mouth of the rock face in order to enter the Eyrie. If the rock face is symbolizing the face of the moon, then this would effectively imply the Eyrie as the inside of the moon, which you can only reach by being swallowed by the moon mouth. And that would mirror the scene with John walking into the tunnel beneath the wall because it was described as being swallowed down the gullet of an ice dragon. And this too symbolized John walking inside the ice moon. So there you go. Gulp. Returning to Gregor Clegane, the moon mountain that rides thundering by like an avalanche, I will point out that even the thundering word is important, because after the others shatter Sir Waymar's sword in the prologue, Will found what was left of the sword a few feet away, the end splintered and twisted like a tree struck by lightning. And then when Sam fights an other in a storm of swords, it says... The other's sword gleamed with a faint blue glow. It moved towards Gren, lightning quick, slashing. When the ice blue blade brushed the flames, a screech stabbed Sam's ear sharp as a needle. If you think about it, it actually makes a ton of sense to associate the others with lightning. The others are all about the concept of blue fire and cold burning blue stars, and real lightning ranges in color from blue to purple. It's a natural fit for the glowing blue swords of the others, so they move with lightning quickness and break swords as lightning does trees. You may remember the shock of the cold as Vermeer experiences his real death, which was compared to plunging through an icy lake surface, as well as that same shock of cold that John feels when going through the icy waterfall amidst foreshadowing of his death. It's electric, baby. Boogie woogie. And it's also common sense. If you're searching for metaphors and symbols to depict the weird concept of cold blue fire, electricity and lightning are the logical things to use. Of course, we can't talk about lightning without thinking about the legend of the Grey King stealing the fire of the gods through a tree set ablaze by the storm god's thunderbolt, a myth near and dear to all mythheads' hearts, I would say. That's right on the money because the Grey King myth seems to refer to Azor High or his kind possessing the fire of the gods, and I believe that that fire was in part used to create the others when an Azor High person became Knight's King and gave his seed and sold a Knight's Queen to make the others. You'll notice that the others break Waymar's sword as lightning strikes a tree. That message couldn't be any more clear. The others strike with the thunderbolt of the gods. So to put it simply, the others represent the idea of freezing the fire of the gods. And I think that should be an easy concept for y'all to see with everything we've explored in the last year. We're going to build on this concept as we go, so I thought I'd point it out since Gregor is thundering like an avalanche in this scene. Think of an ice storm with lightning, but also the invasion of the lightning quick others. It all sounds pretty bad, if you ask me. Now back to the moon mountain that jousts and the main action. Sandor Clegane and his immense brother, Sir Gregor the Mountain, seemed unstoppable as well, riding down one foe after the next in ferocious style. 
The most terrifying moment of the day came during Sir Gregor's second joust, when his lance rode up and struck a young knight from the vale under the gorget with such force that it drove through his throat, killing him instantly. The youth fell not ten feet from where Sansa was seated. The point of Sir Gregor's lance had snapped off in his neck, and his life's blood flowed out in slow pulses, each one weaker than the one before. His armor was shiny new. A bright streak of fire ran down his outstretched arm as the steel caught the light. Then, when the sun went behind a cloud, it was gone. His cloak was blue, the color of the sky on a clear summer's day, trimmed with a border of crescent moons. But as his blood seeped into it, the cloth darkened and the moons turned red, one by one. Okay, so what's going on here? The poor young knight turns out to be Sir Hugh of the Vale, and it's not hard to see the basics of a giant's lance penetrating a blue moon person and turning his moons bloody. It's definitely some sort of mythical astronomy going on. But this isn't a simple Azor High stabs Nissa Nissa thing, oh no. That is a fire moon incident, as we know, and the victim here is decked out in ice moon symbolism. He's named Hugh of the Vale to clue us in that he represents the Vale as a whole, and therefore the ice moon as a whole. Again, look at his coloring. <laughs> Blue and white, and he's got moons. I mean, it's not super complicated. Now harken back to Bloodstone Compendium 4, the mountain versus the viper and the hammer of the waters. That episode centered around the famous trial by combat between Sir Gregor and Oberyn Martell, the red viper of Dorne. And in that fight, it seems abundantly clear that Gregor is playing the role of the fire moon, with Oberyn as the sun and his spear as the comet. These mechanics are spelled out many times over in the fight, with my favorite example being when Gregor actually blocks out the sun right as he's stabbed with the spear just as the moon wandered too close to the sun into an eclipse position when it was cracked open by the comet, according to my theory, of course. Gregor's whole deal is that he shows us the fire moon transforming into the devastating moon meteors, which can also be seen as fiery hellhounds. Hence Gregor's shield in the fight, which begins as a white shield with the seven-pointed star of the faith on it, but then reveals itself as the three black dogs on yellow beneath, the hellhounds on fire symbolism which calls out to three-headed Cerberus. Gregor's always covered in moon rock imagery, from his stone fist helm to the descriptions of him as a stone giant, with a face that might have been hewn from rock, whose voice is like stone breaking. Of course, his main nickname is the mountain that rides, or just the mountain, which really makes the point that he just represents a flying piece of space rock, a moving mountain. This also gives us a clue to link Gregor, a giant mountain with a lance, to the giant mountain called the giant's lance. But isn't the giant's lance an ice moon symbol? Didn't I just say the Eerie is an ice moon and that Gregor is a fire moon turned moon meteor? Well, again, the dragon locked in ice metaphor solves the riddle. Gregor represents a fire moon meteor mountain, which strikes the ice moon and lodges in its ice. That's what the giant's lance is, too. It's a giant mountain of dark stone buried in ice and snow. The mountain itself represents the dragon meteor locked in ice, and so does the tip of Gregor's giant lance, which breaks off and lodges in the throat of Sir Hugh of the Blue Moons. Ergo, when Gregor rides down Sir Hugh, this is simply the fire moon meteor hurling through space to strike the ice moon. Gregor isn't an ice moon person, but he can trigger avalanches when he embeds in the ice. Sir Hugh's arm lights up momentarily with a bright streak of fire before the clouds hide the sun. I probably don't even have to tell you that this seems like a depiction of the streaking fire moon meteor momentarily lighting up the sky before moon blood drowns everything, and the sun is hidden by the clouds of dust, ash, and smoke, which cause the darkness of the long night. Better yet, the cloudy sky is mirrored in Hugh's cloak, which begins as the color of the sky on a clear summer's day, trimmed with a border of crescent moons, but then it darkens as the blood seeps in. It's quite literally an image of moon blood darkening the sky. Hat tip Colin VW from the Twitter of Screw. Thanks, Colin. Also take note of the Hammer of the Water signature wounds here. Hugh is pierced in the neck, and then his arm appears to be on fire, 
Just like the poor stable boy in the Oberyn and Gregor fight, who lost his arm and then his head to Gregor's rage. The Hammer of the Waters is said to have struck the arm of Dorne and the neck of Westeros, in case anyone forgot what I mean when I say Hammer of the Waters injuries. Then comes the crying. It's the crying game, yes. The next paragraph, after Sir Hugh's moons turn red one by one, brings us wonderful tear symbolism. Jane Poole wept so hysterically that Septim Ordain finally took her off to regain her composure. But Sansa sat with her hands folded in her lap, watching with a strange fascination. She had never seen a man die before. She ought to be crying too, she thought, but the tears would not come. Perhaps she had used up all her tears for Lady and Bran. Much like Alyssa, Sansa cannot weep. Sansa will, of course, be going to the Eyrie to play the Ice Moon Queen, so that figures. And this whole scene being centered from Sansa's POV, and then with Sir Hugh falling to die only yards away from Sansa, sort of points the finger at Sansa's, this basically being foreshadowing for her arc. And then we have Jane Poole, who has even more clear Night's Queen, Ice Queen symbolism, with her cold corpse language in A Dance with Dragons, and her house sigil of a circular blue pool on white. The cold pool symbol, paired with Jane's tears, bring us right back to crying Lucifer in the frozen lake in Dante's ninth circle of hell. Of course, icy tears are just ice moon meteor symbols in general, and they should be coming from ice queens, as they do here. Sir Hugh has some other clues about the others, pun intended, and they come in the form of, what else, double entendres, using the word others. They come back to back when Ned goes to talk to Peter Baelish, looking for people connected to John Aaron, who are still in King's Landing. Littlefigure mentions four people, Sir Hugh among them, and Ned says... His squire? Ned was pleasantly surprised. A man's squire often knew a great deal of his comings and goings. Sir Hugh of the Vale, Littlefinger named him. The king knighted the boy after Lord Aaron's death. I shall send for him, Ned said, and the others. Sir Hugh is an ice moon symbol, so of course the others come with him. Two pages later... Is there a man in your service that you trust utterly and completely? Yes, said Ned. In that case, I have a delightful palace in Valeria that I would dearly love to sell to you. Littlefinger said with a mocking smile. The wiser answer was no, my lord, but be that as it may. Send this paragon of yours to Sir Hugh and the others. Ned doesn't need a palace in Valyria because he already has a castle built over one of the furnaces of the world, which might even have a dragon. Probably not, but maybe. There's one more like this when Ned speaks with Jory Cassell, the aforementioned paragon of virtue, about the results of his inquiry. It sounded as if this boy would be even less use than the others, and he was the last of the four Littlefinger had turned up. Jory had spoken to each of them in turn. Sir Hugh had been brusque and uninformative, and arrogant as only a new-made knight can be. Sir Hugh definitely runs with the others, that's safe to say. There's another, even more covert, but more symbolically rich, clue which comes to us in A Feast for Crows, when Brienne recalls the time several cruel knights secretly made bets as to who could bed her first. Those cruel knights. Here's the quote, and in it, Brienne is thinking about how Heil Hunt gave her the great gifts of a finely crafted book of legends, a blue silk plume for her helm, and even trained with her the yard, which meant the most to Brienne the Blue. She thought it was because of him that the others started being courteous. More than courteous. At the table, men fought for a place beside her, offering to fill her wine cup or to fetch her sweetbreads. Sir Richard Farrow played love songs on his lute outside her pavilion. Sir Hugh Beesbury brought her a pot of honey, as sweet as the maids of Tarth. Hello. It's not the same Sir Hugh, but the Beesbury affiliation makes us think of how the Eyrie is twice described as a white or frozen honeycomb. And look, he's one of the others who started being courteous to Brienne. One of those others even plays a lute for her, echoing Rhaegar and Lyanna just a bit. I absolutely love the idea of Brienne as a beautiful knight's queen, whom the others are all gathering around to pay homage. 
That aside, Sir Hugh Beesbury brings Brienne a pot of honey as sweet as the maids of Tarth. But as we know, Brienne the maid of Tarth is a terrific ice moon maiden. So once again, this is a reference to frozen honey, and thus to the Eerie, which is a frozen honeycomb. And of course, to the greater concept of freezing the fire of the gods, which defines the others. Upon further analysis, the frozen honeycomb seems to be another version of the dragon locked in ice idea, in a sense. The mythological concept of the food of the gods, which is essentially the exact same thing as the fire of the gods, is often depicted as honey. Think of young Zeus, for example, being fed the honey sap of the ash tree by the Melii, who are ash tree nymphs. We've also seen the biblical milk and honey language applied to weirwood paste and other things that stand in for weirwood paste, like milk of the poppy or the sweetened ice milk that Picel serves Ned. Ergo, Honey seems to be another form of the fire, power, and wisdom of the gods which man can consume. And so, frozen honey and a frozen honeycomb work very well to depict the idea of the fire of the gods being frozen inside the ice moon. And as we look at scenes from the Eerie with Lysa and Sweet Robin and Sansa, we'll actually see honeycombs used a few times in very suggestive ways. So, the giant's lance actually turns out to be nothing less than the largest physical dragon-locked-in-ice symbol of them all. It's really quite thrilling, as the mechanics of the jousting scene correlate so tightly to the mountain itself. A fire-moon mountain that rides, and leaves a bit of lance in the ice moon. Gregor also shows us great locked-in-ice symbolism after he loses his duel with Oberyn, whereupon he is resurrected in some fashion, and then locked in the snow-white armor of the Kingsguard. That's right, it's super easy to see the symbolism here, now that we've understood the Kingsguard's status as others' stand-ins. Gregor the Mountain is once again exactly the same as the giant's lance mountain, wrapped in snow armor instead of actual snow. So now we can make a bit of a prediction. Gregor will be involved in some sort of fight against a comet or dragon person, and we should be treated to an avalanche and ice-moon explosion symbolism, and probably some sort of others' invading symbolism as well. At the end of the last episode, Ice Moon Apocalypse, we also saw that Martin seems to be applying the Giant's Awakening symbolism to the impending Ice Moon disaster in those two scenes with Woon Woon, and I'd expect that to be paralleled with Gregor as well. Look for him to smash someone against a wall, or to be smashed against a wall, perhaps, although I'm not sure how you could do that. Maybe someone will knock him off a ledge. That may be one of the only ways to kill him. Either that or setting him on fire, which is always a failsafe. Now, since we've been talking about the giant's lance this whole time, I suppose I should uh, show you the one actual description of the mountain itself that we get. I saved it for the end of this section on purpose, actually, because it will really ring out after everything that we've just discussed. This is the one that describes the giant's lance as dark stone, but there's a lot more going on here, too. Looming over them all was the jagged peak called the giant's lance, a mountain that even the mountains looked up to, its head lost in icy mist three and a half miles above the valley floor. Over its massive western shoulder flowed the ghost torrent of Alyssa's tears. Even from this distance, Caitlin could make out the shining silver thread, bright against the dark stone. Now I have to say, when I hear a mountain that even mountains look up to, I think of Sir Gregor the Mountain, looking up at the giant's Lance Mountain and sort of, you know, liking what he sees and nodding in approval. And that's not the only Gregor joke that Martin is making here. Notice that the head of the mountain is lost in icy mists. The head of the mountain is lost. Yeah, that's right. Gregor was decapitated. Bran's dream vision of him depicts him as a giant armored in stone with nothing but darkness and blood beneath his visor. So we know that the headless giant thing is important. And hey, look, icy mists and a ghost torrent. Icy mist is specifically an other's phrase, and as we pointed out last time, the ghost torrent thing seems to allude to the Torrentine River at Starfall, and Danny's dreams of melting ice-armored warriors and turning the trident into a torrent. But we've talked about that before. Ho-hum, what have you done for me lately, right? So, check out the shining silver thread language applied to Alyssa's tears, and now look at this description of the wall, which, of course, is 100% analogous to Alyssa's tears as a frozen veil of tear symbol, as we talked about in the first section. This is Tyrion in A Game of Thrones when he climbs to the top of the wall to have a piss and think about snarks and grumpkins a bit. 
He looked off to the east and west at the wall stretching before him, a vast white road with no beginning and no end and a dark abyss on either side. West, he decided for no special reason, and he began to walk that way, following the pathway nearest the north edge where the gravel looked the freshest. His bare cheeks were ruddy with the cold, his legs complained loudly with every step, but Tyrion ignored them. The wind swirled around him, gravel crunched beneath his boots, while ahead the white ribbon followed the lines of the hills, rising higher and higher until it was lost beyond the western horizon. So, the wall is an icy white ribbon with a dark abyss on either side, while Alyssa's tears are a sometimes frozen, shining silver thread with dark stone on either side. The wall is rising higher and higher into the horizon until it is lost beyond the horizon, while Alyssa's tears are flowing from the shoulder of a giant mountain whose head is lost in icy mists. They're very similar descriptions, because they're the same symbol. There's also another layer added to the frozen veil of tears concept here. The wall is like a white road with no beginning and no ending, almost as if time is frozen. The wall is also described as a frozen river, and of course you recall that Bloodraven instructs Bran that, For men, time is a river. We are trapped in its flow, hurtling from past to present, always in the same direction. The lives of trees are different. They root and grow and die in one place, and that river does not move them. So what happens when you freeze the river of time? You might get some sort of very cold Ouroboros, I think, like Tyrion's concept of the wall as an endless road. And, in a sense, the long night can be thought of as stopping time, because it makes everything stuck on nighttime and winter, with the sun and the springtime never coming. Wow, the others are getting even more evil by the minute. Freezing the river of time, coming back through the veil of tears. Gods, if they freeze time and then break it, what happens to the timeline? Okay, I'm getting a headache. Call it a brain freeze. Metaphors aside, we now have a good general concept of what the Eerie is about and how it works. So let's stop beating around the bush and get to Her Majesty, the Queen in the North, Sansa Stark. Or is it Elaine Stone? To hear the debut of Part 2 of Signs and Portals, Sansa Locked in Ice, join me this Sunday, August 5th at 3 Eastern on the Lucifer Means Lightbringer YouTube channel. Maester Mary returns as my co-pilot and will be joined by San Rixian for the post-game. See you then.